Thanks, you may be seated. Chris was busy reading there, and I thought for a minute he was going to read the entire New Testament. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, um, but hopefully as we look through this, we'll be able to pull out some key things that are going to help us have just a better glimpse of what's going on and what's happening here in this portion of Mark. Uh, the movie City Slickers came out over 20 years ago, but it's still considered one of the funniest movies of all times. And uh, if you remember, that there was one memorable scene in that movie where Curly, who's the gritty cowboy played by uh, the late Jack Palance, and then city slicker Mitch, uh, played by Billy Crystal, they leave the group and they're out searching for lost cows, right? Lost cattle. And even though these guys have been like antagonistic toward each other and doing this through the whole thing, they, they kind of had this moment um, where, where they kind of came together and they connected. And, and suddenly Curly kind of reins in his horse and he turns on his saddle and, and he looks at Mitch. And Curly says this, do you know what the secret to life is? Mitch said, no, no, what, what? He said, it's this. One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that, and everything else doesn't mean anything. So Mitch said, that's great, that's great. So what's the one thing? And Curly says, that's what you got to figure out. And the whole movie was him trying to figure out what is the one thing. We've been walking through the book of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of Mark. And what we've been seeing all through Mark so far is there's really one thing. There's really one thing. That one thing and that one big question that's being posed is who is Jesus? And then as soon as you answer that question, the next question comes up. So what are you going to do with them? And that's what's been happening. Jesus has been, been displaying who he is. He's been doing all these things. And, and, and the people are confronted with, what are we going to do with this guy, Jesus? He's been either doing three things so far. As you look through the book of Mark, he's either performing miracles and healing the sick. We've seen a lot of that happen. Or he's preaching and teaching specifically about his kingdom. Or he's preparing his disciples for their coming mission. So today, Jesus is going to teach his disciples more about the nature of this kingdom. Specifically, what are the entry requirements? And they're going to be surprised because his kingdom is radically different than what they're expecting. They continued to be confused about the nature of this new kingdom. They kept thinking it's going to be a political kingdom, and Jesus is going to be the ruler, we're going to be his cohorts, and we are going to overthrow Rome and all this oppression that we're feeling, and we're finally going to be free. And they thought, because of nature of, and virtue of their heritage the, and their attempt to keep the law, that they were the guys that were part of this new kingdom. So, so Jesus is continually showing them that this kingdom is radically different than what they're expecting. You, you see, it's first of all, it's an upside-down kingdom. Even though really it's the right-side-up kingdom, to the values of that culture, and boy, to the values of our culture today, Jesus' kingdom is upside-down. 
everything our world thinks is important gets flipped upside down. What's most important to the masses is not important to Jesus. And what's most important to Jesus really isn't that important to the masses. And you guys, that's the same kind of culture we live in. Everything that matters to Jesus doesn't matter, but what really shouldn't matter matters to this world. You see, the the earthly kingdom values things like power, prestige, possessions, pleasure. The kingdom of God values things like humility, meekness, contentment, peace. You see, in the world's kingdom, who's important? The rich and the famous. All you got to do is turn on your TV, right? And you'll see that over and over and over and over. What's important in God's kingdom is the least, the last, and the lost. It's an upside-down kingdom. But it's not only upside-down. Jesus' kingdom is inside-out. What's important is not what you have or who you are in his kingdom. What's important is your heart and a changed heart. One that bears the image of God and puts him on display. It's not about the things you have and how you look to everybody else. It's about your relationship to this new king. So today we're going to see Jesus make some very key statements about his kingdom. He's going to show us in the first section who can enter the kingdom and what the entry requirements are. Then we're going to see the example of what can keep somebody out of that kingdom And then we're going to see just how hard it is to enter this upside-down, inside-out kingdom. So we're jumping into this section where he's teaching about the kingdom in verse 13. Look at what he says in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Okay, Jesus has gained this great popularity. Everybody's heard about him now. His name is just going all through the country. Everybody's hearing about him. And, and he was seen by, by many as just a great teacher and a great healer. He's doing all these miracles and he teaches this stuff. He's doing things even the greatest rabbis couldn't do. So people wanted this opportunity to get close to him and touch him and receive some kind of a blessing from him. I mean, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? So look at how his disciples responded. And the disciples rebuked them. And that word rebuked is a strong word. It was continuously in their face. They were ticked off that these people were there. Now, now before we get too critical of the disciples here, we've got to really understand what's happening here. In Luke, in the same passage in Luke, Luke makes it clear that the children here were infants. And even the word for children means infant. Probably one years of age or younger. And it was customary in that culture that by the time your child reached one, you're to have taken them to a rabbi and have that rabbi touch the child and bless them. And so every parent would do that with all of their children. Well, now Jesus is the hot, popular rabbi teacher that everybody wanted to bring their one-year-old to to get his blessing. Okay, so, so look at the scene here. Picture it. They're at a house, and there's possibly hundreds of moms coming with their infants. 
You know what that means? A lot of screaming, a lot of crying, a lot of wiggling, a lot of dirty diapers, right? It's mayhem. And then they're all pushing because they want to get to Jesus, and there's limited time, and there's all of these moms with their kids trying to get, I mean, this is worse than Black Friday at Walmart. There's pushing, there's shoving, there's all this stuff going on. So the disciples are going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, time out. Leave Jesus alone and leave us alone. We've got more important things to tend to. But really, the disciples' response was typical to the crowds that they've had. Their initial response was always, these people are bothering us. They're a hassle. Jesus, what do we need to do to get rid of them? And that's their response here. Don't disrupt our time with Jesus. You guys aren't important. We are. This is our time with him. So look at Jesus' response in verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus was indignant. He, he was in grief. To be oppressed in mind, to grieve, to feel strong displeasure. The synonyms of that word are to be angry or irate. This indignation here of our Lord really was a reflection of his love. He was angry with his disciples because he so deeply loved these tender little ones who were being brought to him. And see, the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't see that this kingdom is made up of people like this. So Jesus is going to now show the disciples that they really don't understand the values of the new kingdom. So he's going to give five statements. Here's statement number one. We see it in verse 15. Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. That's his statement. Here's the principle. Humility and dependence are requirements to enter God's kingdom. Humility and dependence are requirements to enter God's kingdom. You see, this really blew the mind of the disciples because they believed children, what do, what do children, let alone these infants, what do they have to offer our political kingdom of power and prestige? They get in the way. And they weren't seen as important in the religious circles of their day. So Jesus is saying this kingdom is not populated by the prestigious and the successful, or even the religious for that matter, but by those who come in trusting, humble attitudes like these little children. And this is the second time Jesus has used a little child to illustrate that to them. See, what do, what do they bring? To, what do infants bring to the table? Nothing. They're dependent for everything. Those of you that have had a child and, and that first child, it, it, I don't know, dads, about you, but, but there's two things that hit me when Blake appeared. 
wow, this is an amazing thing. Birth is an amazing thing. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm responsible for this little thing that can't do anything for himself. He requires everything to be done for him. That's what an infant is, right? And, and they can be self-centered, but they haven't developed yet the pride that says, hey, I'm important. All they know is just instinctively, I want to be fed. So, see, it, it just brings us to this thing of what's a child have to offer? Nothing. They're dependent. One author puts it this way. The only ones who enter God's kingdom are those who come to him in the simplicity, openness, dependence, lack of pretension, and lack of hypocrisy of little children. As John Calvin commented, the passage broadens to give kingdom citizenship to both children and those who are like him. So what's Jesus saying here? It's, it's pretty simple. He's saying that those children, representative of all children, were a picture of the humility and dependence and trust of those of any age who are going to enter his kingdom. You see, the entrance requirements are simply this, humility and dependence. So Jesus, as is, is typical, um, uses the real-life situations that they are involved in to really prove his point. Let's see how he does that. In verses 17 through 22 that Chris read for us, uh, Jesus now, as he begin to move away from the house, encounters this rich young ruler. And he, he was a young man. He was rich. He was a ruler. He was very religious. He was devout, honest wealthy, probably prominent and influential. He was a good, outstanding citizen, a very, very good religious man. You see, he had all of the essentials valued by the Jews' view of what a kingdom citizen should be like. He was the type of person that God affirmed and blessed. He had all of the credentials that they believed necessary to get in. He'd met the requirement exam. And this, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he was very sincere. Verse 17, it says this. He ran up to him, he knelt before him, and he asked him, good teacher. Okay, stop right there. He ran up to him in excitement and anticipation. You see, he really believed Jesus had something for him. He really believed that. He knelt in honor and humility. He recognized Jesus as a good teacher. But he knew something was missing. He had all the entrance requirements that the Jews thought were necessary, but he just felt deep down inside of his soul and his heart that something's missing. So he asked the question, good teacher, what good thing must I do? And simply by asking that question, he's showing that he's beyond all the hypocrisy of the religious scribes and Pharisees. He recognized he had a deep spiritual need and that for all of his religious efforts and all that he's done, it's still unfulfilled. He'd done everything he knew to do that was right and something's missing. He knew he didn't possess the life of God that satisfies 
not only here and now, but gives hope for the future. So look at Jesus' response in verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Why would Jesus say that? Isn't Jesus good? And he says, there's, there's no one good except God alone. Isn't Jesus God? Why was it wrong for this guy to call him good? Why didn't Jesus accept that? I think it's because he called him good teacher, but he didn't see him as God. He saw him at the same level of all the other teachers, but he's like a good teacher. So what do you come to a good teacher for? to give me good information, right? In the account in Matthew, it just says he didn't call him good teacher. He just said, what is the good thing I have yet to do? See, Jesus says, don't come to me because you think I'm good. You come to God. Don't just come to a teacher. You need to come to God. And you see, the rich young ruler didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He did not see him as God in the flesh. And in both accounts now, Jesus answers his question. What good thing must I do? Interesting, look at this. He says, obey the commandments. Well, this rich young ruler had kept all the commandments. He thought, at least on an external level, he probably had. But see, Jesus knew his heart. He knew that he lacked at least one of the entrance requirements. Dependent. He was acting humble. Okay, he's got that one down, maybe, at least on an external basis. But Jesus knew he lacked dependence. And it's interesting, Mark says, at this point, Jesus felt a love for him. Here's this guy who's sincere, but sincerely wrong, looking, searching, and Jesus' heart came out here's the compassion of christ again for for that person that that lost person who desperately wants to know him so to reveal his heart and to reveal what he was lacking jesus gave him a very interesting response so what commandments do i keep he says you know what you you lack this one thing okay you've kept all the commandments take all that you have Go sell all that you have, verse 21, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. All right, let's stop just a minute, because that's really a weird statement. Does selling all that you have give you eternal life? No. I mean, we can sell everything we have and give it to the poor. Is that going to get us into the kingdom? Well, why would Jesus say that? Because he knew the heart of this rich young ruler. Jesus knew that this commandment that he gave him went right to the heart of the issue. And Jesus' call to become a Christian is always a call to follow him, to leave everything behind if necessary, family, friends, possessions, occupations, inheritance, all that. We saw that earlier the last time I was here with you. That's what we saw. You had to be willing to give up friends and family and everything to follow Jesus. See, what's the issue? 
The issue is not to allow anything to be more important to you than Jesus. The rich young ruler just couldn't do it. He couldn't let go of what he had. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was disheartened. He was sad. The word there means to lower one's head in despair. You ever felt that way? You just lower your head in despair. And he walked away. He was like really bummed. Why? It says there, because he had great possessions. He may have had humility and teachability, but he lacked dependence. He wanted peace and God's blessing, but he didn't want God. He did not want to know the one and only God. He just wanted to know, what do I have to do? Therefore, Jesus did not offer him relief for his felt need. Instead, he said, you got to depend on God and God alone. See, he had to choose either Christ or his possessions. And Jesus has said earlier, you can't serve both of those. And see, this pride and self-sufficiency just continues to rear its ugly head. Pride can blind us of our sin. And then our religious activity can get us to focus on our achievements and actions, not on the God who saves us. And so Jesus then makes his second statement about his kingdom in verse 23. He says this, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why does wealth make it difficult to enter the kingdom of God? I thought a lot about it, and I thought, what does money do to us? What does it do to us? I shared last time when I drive down the 60, and I see the big, big billboard with Mega Millions and the Powerball, and how much it is this week. Oh, come on, you do it too. You think, well, what would I do if I had, you know, $78 million? And I'd give half it away for ministry, half of it to the government and taxes. So what would I do with my $10 million I had left? You know, we all think that way, don't we? Money has this lure. What money does is it can provide a false sense of security. Now, now you say, well, I don't have that problem because I don't have any money. It's not a problem to me. I don't have any money. I don't put my security in money. No, but you kind of think if you had it, it, you might be a little bit more secure than you are right now. Right? It, it provides us false sense of security. It blinds us to our needs. You have all these needs in your life, and, and most of the ones that hit us every day are the physical needs. Right? And money can blind us. When we have money, we don't see what our real need is. When we have money, we tend not to turn to the divine resources because we have enough on our own. You see, we really don't need God. Now, now think about it. Think about a time in your life when you were most financially destitute. Maybe for some of you, that's right now. I think of a couple times in our life when we first moved over 
here from, from California, and um, we, we ran out of money. And we got to the point where I didn't even, we didn't have money that day to buy groceries. And I remember waking up that morning and turning to Jan and go, I don't know what manna looks like, but I think we're going to find out today. And later that day, I went to the mailbox to get our mail, and there was an unstamped, uncertified envelope with $100 cash in it. And I walked in and said, here's what manna looks like. But you know what? In those days, in those moments, man, did I pray about our physical need. See, when you are really needy and your resources don't work anymore, where do we finally tend to go? To God. But guess what happens? When my resources are enough, guess where I don't tend to go? To God. Why? Because I'm depending on these other resources. I don't need God. Money blinds us of our need. And we will turn to that as our resource to depend on rather than God. So you know what happens? We become tied to this world, to our bank account, our investments, our possessions. And we can become content with our riches. And most of you go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there yet. But you know what? You're not content with what you don't have either. And it's like, if I just had this, if I just had more of this. See, lack of money often feels like the biggest problem in our lives. If I only had more money, then my wife would stop bugging me. If I only had more money, I could buy the things my kids want, and that's going to make them happy. If I had more money, I could then be the good father and good husband. If we had more money, I won't have to trust my husband to make enough so we can buy food. If we just had some more money, I wouldn't have to worry about the electricity being turned off. If, if I just had more money, I wouldn't have to worry about anything. And sometimes it's just even more than the things we have. If I had more money, I could prove to myself and everybody else that I'm successful. You know, like the guy that shows up at your class reunion in a stretch limo trying to prove to everybody that, hey, I made it. I'm successful. Sometimes it's just about me feeling like I'm a success myself. See, all of that is a distraction. We're depending on something other than God. That's why Jesus' kingdom principle number two here is this. It's hard to depend on God when you can depend on money. That's why I said it's hard for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to depend on God when you can depend on money. When you have money, you don't have to trust God. You trust the money and the things that money can bring you. Power, prestige, possessions, pleasure. You don't think you need God. What life offers you is enough. But is it? Money can cause you to feel superior to those who have less or envious of, envious of those who have more. That's just pride. Money can cause you to feel self-sufficient. Pride Self-sufficiency, you know what those are? They're the opposite of humility and dependence. We'll depend on money and things, not God. We become self-sufficient. We don't need God. No, no, having money is not the issue. 
Money's not bad. Money's not the issue. The question is how you got it, what you do with it, and what your attitude is toward it. Are you trusting money to take care of you and give you life? Aaron Daly over at uh, Alhambra posted this morning on Instagram. He's preaching on this passage over there with uh, the redemption group at Alhambra. And his post this morning is this. Do you have money or does money have you? Isn't that good? Listen to what John says. First John 2. Don't love the world, the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of this world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Money doesn't last. You don't take it with you. You leave it all behind for other people to fight over. Right? And here's Satan's lie. Satan's lie is so simple, and this is all he wants you to do. He wants you to do two things. Doubt God and depend on yourself. Doubt God, depend on yourself. That's it. That's all he wants you to do. That's what he threw at Eve in the garden. God really didn't say this. You can just have life without him. Doubt God, depend on yourself. That's his strategy. It's the same strategy today. He just dresses it up in different packages for us. See, doubt God. God cannot be trusted. Trust in yourself. Don't trust in him. God is not enough. Trust in your things. You don't really need him. Doubt God. You know better than he does. That's pride. Depend on yourself. You can handle it. That's self-sufficiency. And money can feed both of those. So look at the disciples' response in verse 24. They were amazed. They were amazed because, see, they believed that wealth was the evidence that God was on your side and you're truly part of his kingdom. They came from a culture that saw wealth not as evil but as the reward for good moral behavior. They accepted the view that if you live a good life, then God will reward you with prosperity, and that prosperity is things. You see, the kingdom of God is so upside down to that view. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for those theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. That means those who are spiritually bankrupt. The poor in spirit. Those who realize I have absolutely nothing to offer God. I'm a one-year-old infant who can't even change my own diaper." That's what I have to offer God. Jesus takes it a step further. Look at verse 24. Here's his third statement. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he's just talk, they're just talking about these children, right? And now he calls the disciples children. What's interesting, it's a different word. Referring to the children that were being brought to him, that word referred to infants. This word for children refers to older children, and the emphasis of this word is on being a descendant. So what's he saying to these guys? He's not calling them infants. He's saying, okay, 
you children. You're a son or a daughter. You're a descendant. Look at, even though you are a descendant of Abraham and you think you've got the right heritage, it's still hard to enter the kingdom of God. Your heritage as a Jew, as a son of Abraham, isn't a shoe-in for you. You guys, the fact that your parents are believers is not a shoe-in for you. The fact that you've grown up in the church isn't a shoe-in for you. It can be just as hard for us to depend on religious activities or our, our heritage as it is to depend on money to get us in. And Jesus is saying, neither one of those get you in. So here's that principle that goes with it. It's hard to trust God when you're trusting in external things like your heritage or your activity. Paul said that. Look, I was the Jew of Jews, he said. If anybody had a right to say, I'm in because of my heritage and because of what I do, he said, look, you talk about being religious. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept all the law. Matter of fact, I persecuted people who stood up against the law. How more religious can you get than that? And he said, I count all that as rubbish. These are hard statements. Jesus is making a point. It's hard to come to him when there are other things that you depend on other than him. That's his point. How hard? It says in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? It is almost impossible. He said, Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow and hard is, is the gate that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And what do you think the disciples are thinking about now? It says they were astonished, verse 26. They were even more astonished, and they said, well, then who can be saved? If the wealthy aren't getting in, and if the religious aren't getting in, who can get in? Statement number four, verse 27. I love this. With people, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with him. What's the principle Jesus is bringing out here about his kingdom? It is God who saves you, not your works or your wealth. It's God who saves you, not your works or your wealth, not your works, your self-righteousness, or your wealth, those riches that you can depend on other than God. You're dead in your sins. You cannot give yourself life. Your heart is sinful. You cannot change your heart. That is why Jesus does an interesting thing, and the next thing he's going to start predicting for the third time that he's going to the cross. How are you going to get in? It's not going to be based on what you do. It's totally based on what Jesus did. Your wealth doesn't matter. Your religious activity doesn't matter. All that matters is what Jesus is about to do on the cross on our behalf. See, it's the grace of God that saves them and us. It's not our own doing, Paul said in Ephesians 2. It's the gift of God, not a result of our works, so that no one can boast. 
Pride's the opposite of humility. Self-sufficiency is the opposite of dependence. Peter's response, well, wait a minute. Whoa, verse 30, wait a minute. Then what, what about us? He said, we gave up everything. He said, yeah, I know you gave up everything. And you know what? You're going to be blessed and honored because of that. And statement number five, he ends in verse 31. He says, many who are first will be last and last will be first. So kingdom principle number five is this. The humble will be exalted. It requires humility and dependence. It requires being willing to give up everything else to follow Jesus. And those that do are going to be exalted. We're going to talk more about that next week. So the question is, where are we? You say, well, okay, I'm already in. Well, guess what? Humility and dependence aren't just the requirements to get into the kingdom. They're characteristics of someone who lives in the kingdom. So here's, here's our conclusion. In the midst of teaching about this new kingdom, who's going to be in, who's going to be out? It's only be possible because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And therein lies our hope. So the first question you have to ask is, are you in? Are you in? And you can't base it on anything other than the work of Christ on your behalf. Are you humble enough to admit your need? Are you trusting in anything else other than the death and resurrection of Christ for you and your place? Okay, then if you are and you're in, then the question is this, are you living like a kingdom citizen? Are you being distracted by the things the world is offering? The things that we gets pushed in our face, promising us life apart from God? Are you letting money and things or the lack of it distract you from the things that really matter? Are you anxious about life? Are, are you worried about how you're just going to get by? Are, are you storing up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal? And it just comes down to this last question for all of us. What do you treasure? If you're not truly a follower of Christ today, Jesus has compassion on you, and he bids you to come and follow him. Come to him in dependence and humility. If you are a follower of Christ, are you living for his kingdom, or are you trying to build your own with all these things? Live in dependence and humility, and do whatever you do to put him on display, because the world is looking for hope. And they have the same question that rich young ruler had. And we can give them an answer and demonstrate that by the lives we live. Let's pray. God, thank you that just as you had compassion on the rich young ruler, you have compassion on us. And you love us so much that you would send your own son to die in our place on the cross. And Jesus, thank you for your humility and your dependence on the Father that took you to the cross. God, help us live for what matters. Help us as we fight this fight of being distracted by so many values and so many things that have nothing to do with your kingdom. Help us to live for your kingdom and to live for you, our king. And we pray that in. Amen.